Right, hello, welcome to Defin episode 6. No guests, nothing else, just myself and VJ. How are you doing, VJ? Hello, Ray, I'm doing good. I think this is just, uh, as you said, uh, two village idiots talking about COVID. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> no, yeah, I'm sorry, no people. No experts to correct us. Yeah, it's just going to be total BS this week, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right, okay, so, um, should we do a quick follow-up from last yeah. week, last time? Of course. So um, last week we had uh, super fun with um, Misha talking about Hoplon and of course some uh, nuclear uh, issues as well. Yeah. But uh, it, it was very uh, super fun to make and uh, I hope uh, you guys enjoyed that one. So that's um, and we have been getting some pretty good feedback and uh, from from the Slack channel and also online as well on Reddit. We have been uh, raising to the top every now and then onto the closure or subreddit page with uh, uh, spectacular two-digit words so please keep uh, clicking <laughs> I've so, seen it actually so we're up to two digits now yes uh, this is very so good it, it's, very it's good. fantastic yeah. and uh, it's amazing we've actually so, got we've went into double figures on the uh, the deaf and podcast channel as well on slack, on slack yeah that's yeah. true yeah that's so, true I mean, we're, we're really uh, building yeah. a huge community out there yeah now now I'm 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 actually sporting a fake <laughs> mustache whenever I'm getting out of the house because now I'm, I'm a, <laughs> minor internet celebrity i'm looking out for uh, yeah paparazzi and everything but um, it's been it's been uh, anyway so it's been amazing and thanks for your feedback and uh, so we've been uh, before this before just recording uh, we were talking about um, jdk8 support in uh, enclosure uh, yeah so i mean actually the, re the reason why i was interested in it vj was because i'm doing a little project to do with um to do with event streaming actually um, uh, to do with uh, Kafka Streams Library, which is a new library, you know. Yeah. Um, but a lot of these big data libraries, I've noticed, um, you know, we talked about this ourselves before. Um, in fact, when we first met in uh, in the Amsterdam mm. closure days, Dutch Dutch closure Dutch, days, Dutch yeah. closure days, yeah, yeah, um, about the fact that you know Spark and uh, new systems like this Kafka Stream Library, Flink, a lot of them have Scala APIs or yeah. JDK 8 APIs, uh, yeah. but they don't have Clojure APIs. You know, mm. Even though Clojure and Big Data play very well together, um, the APIs don't seem to be coming out there. Uh, now, I know we've got some things that are dedicated Clojure-wise, like Onyx and stuff like that yeah. for Big Data. But, um, but obviously, the whole point about Clojure is to do interoperability uh, and to leverage the work that's out there in the JVM community. Um, so it's a bit of a shame that we're not getting this Java 8 interop because we can't take advantage of these lambdas and streams and stuff like that. Actually, I'm saying that. There's a guy um has written a library called ike.cljj that allows yeah. you to have some of these things. Um, yeah. and, and he seems to be actively developing it, which is, which is good. Mm. Um, but I'm thinking that it would be very nice, even, even if we don't require JDK 1.8, to have some of the core team at least having a look at this interop to, to make it a bit more core to language. Because uh, yeah. the thing I was, was saying before was that, like, that we're going to talk about reducers today, mm. and that requires essentially JDK 1.7. Yeah. I know you can patch JDK 1.6 for some contrib library, but, but really, you, you know, I think for, for all intents and purposes, it's a dependency on JDK 1.7. And there was no problem with that, you know, obviously. Uh, let's just do that. Yeah, and also uh, I, I didn't see anything in the um, 
on on the dev.closure.org wiki as the next um, next release planning there isn't anything any discussion or something happening to support the lambdas or streams or having a proper interop though I, i'm not sure if there are any plans but i guess we need to wait i suppose because 1.9 the major feature is specs right I'm, i don't see any other major major things bundled into 1.9 no that's that's right that's, the, that's the big one i mean obviously the the thing about 1.9 is that it is, and, and alex miller has said this is that it will still only require 1.6 jdk yeah. 1.6 so so there's 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 no chance of them you know mandating 1.8 for for jdk 1. Uh, for closure 1.9 yeah. Um, but they are doing it for some of their other libraries. So Datomic, for instance, now requires JDK 1.8. The latest oh, versions okay. of Datomic require JDK 1.8, um, which is which is of course you know sensible. Mm. Um, I keep on saying 1.8. By the way, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> JDK it? 8. You know, it's like it's such because I'm so such an old old JDK guy. <laughs> user. Know? It's, yes, yeah. it's not 1.7 and 1.6, is it? It's like yeah, it's, it's JDK 8 it's JDK and Java 8, 8 and Java 9. and Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it was the Java, Java 5. Java, Java Software Development Kit 1.8 or something. Pro probably, yeah. There probably is some hidden 1.8 in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, so it's just, it would be it would be interesting to find out if, if anyone else is uh, kind, of having, kind of having similar experiences there with this, uh, this lack of interop. Um, with JDK eight, uh, I wonder if uh, anyone is um, is feeling that. Uh, and obviously, if if anyone's listening from the core team, then it would be nice to to share what was happening in that respect. Maybe if we get Alex on, in the yeah, then we week, can ask him. We can, yeah. we can ask him about that. Actually, <laughs> what we should That's do. <laughs> okay, yeah. I think we've okay. got our answer ourselves for that one. <laughs> okay. okay. So uh, this episode is going to be about concurrency and parallelism. But before we get on to that, we have this um, news and events. And there are lots of things happening in, in Europe, uh, especially. Uh, I think, of course, there is Euroclosure, the, the, probably the biggest uh, European closure conference. I don't know if I'm offending the closure exchange guys in London by saying that. But um, we have Euroclosure in uh, October, I think, October 25th and 26th. And there is CFP still open until August 5th. And there is another event in Finland, Closure Tray, or Closure. I don't know how to pronounce this, but um, this is a pretty awkward name. But um, anyway, uh, that is happening in Tampere in Finland. And that's on September 10th. And I saw that uh, David Nolan is going to attend uh, that event. I think it's a one-day event in uh, in Tampere, Finland. And of course, there is also um, Closure Exchange in the UK, in London. Uh, that is happening in December, 1st and 2nd, and there is a CFP open for that as well. So any of these listeners, if you are interested in talking about closure, uh, I think this is a good opportunity to apply for, uh, well, apply for the call for presentations, both at EuroClosure and um, Skills Matter Closure Exchange. And apart from that, I mean, Defen will be there at EuroClosure, uh, as uh, we've been explaining to our fans, which is plural, <laughs> by the way. Uh, that uh, will be there and um, we'll have a um, powwow or something a quick meetup uh, during the euro closure we'd love to talk to you guys and ask uh, for new ideas and and uh, i think there are a couple of ideas being suggested on slack already like what we should do uh, like speaker interviews and other stuff so maybe we'll plan something we'll plan we'll definitely try and i think get some interviews for for the podcast 
yeah. while we're at while we're at Euro closure, I think that would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? Um, but it actually, it would just be nice to, like you said, you know, just go out and have a have a coffee or a beer or, or a water or a coke or whatever, and <laughs> just have a you know, say hello to people in person. It's always nice, isn't it? Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, uh, we'd we'd love to meet uh, some of the people who are who are listening to this. Um, it would be amazing to get your feedback in person, so yeah, you can as long punch as us punch for... in the face. It's okay. Exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> or or yeah, you never know. But uh, of course, you know, we've been very uh, uh, open about way the way we offend other people. I hope there are not going to be any scholar people there. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah, that's that's going to be a big problem. But anyway, let's get on to the main discussion for the topic for today. So concurrency and parallelism. So there have been a lot of discussions about or our confusion about what is concurrency and what is parallelism. So we're going to throw in our opinions into the into the whole confusion part and then hopefully try to untangle it a bit. Yeah. So I think we're a bit confused ourselves, aren't we? So we'll of course. just we'll just try. <laughs> That's true. We'll just try and talk it through. I think this is like a therapy session, isn't it really? It's kind of like what do you th- what, you know, what do you think? Uh, you know, how do you feel? You know, do you have any problems as a child? You know, I think, you know, did you have concurrent parenting? I think, I think we should start with, hello, my name is Vijay. I just Googled concurrency versus parallelism. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's like a concurrency parallelism anonymous uh, meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, thing, the thing I always think about is, is like, is, is concurrency is... Uh, the thing about the thing that's confusing about concurrency and parallelism is, of course, it's all about things happening at the same time. Yes. So, to some extent, uh, if you say, "Oh, it's it's parallel, not concurrent, or concurrent, not parallel," you're kind of splitting hairs at some point. You know, um, in the end, things happen at the same time. All that really matters, I think, in the end, is yep. what programming constructs do we use for yep. one thing versus the other thing. And you know, and what what programming constructs? How does it benefit us to use the programming constructs for concurrency versus yeah. the programming constructs for parallelism? Um, and I think that in the end, that's what's really going to matter. You know, um, because you you can get yourself tied in knots around what is, you know, is is because you start at the hardware. I mean, you know, at the, yeah, very, yeah. the very basic level, you know, mm-hmm. if you've got one single core, then yeah. In theory, it can only do one thing. But we know yep. for a fact that operating yep. systems hide that. You know, in fact, and in fact, hardware. You know, if you have one CPU, it can only do one thing at a time. Yeah. So the whole point about operating systems is to fake the fact that you've only got one CPU. You know, so if you remember, you know, Linux and Unix, and I think that in the early days of Windows and DOS, of course, in in DOS, when you were at the command prompt. You ran your command and you waited until the command came back. Yeah, you know, yeah. So no it's basically running one there. thing at a time. Yeah. yeah. And it's only yeah. when you get things like, you know, modern operating systems with Windows and, you know, or where you can where you can make a background job. I mean, remember the Unix days? Oh yeah, we can do a. There's an ampersand. You can run a shell that puts a you know that puts this task things in, in the, the background. background. Yeah. What a demon, a demon process. Yeah. What's that all about? You know, we <laughs> we have this this devilish literally. You know. <laughs> It's a, it's a devil. It's, it's in the background. It's a devil, little devil in your machine, demonizing things. You know. uh, so, so it's fundamentally evil. It's fundamentally evil, yeah. So you have yeah. these little background processes running there. Yeah. And, and, and clearly, 
if something is in the background, is it running concurrently or is it running in parallel? Well, actually, you don't really know. You know? Yeah, that's true. But you, you I think if, know my... if there's one CPU, then it yeah. must be con it must be concurrent in the sense that it's faked. You know, that's true. Um, but if it's if it's got two CPUs or you've got yeah. a GPU with multiple um, resources, then yeah. of course it can be running in parallel, and and you don't know that. Yeah, um, but I think that the whole concurrency uh, problem, or not even a problem, the concurrency came because of the whole time slicing, right? When so you have multiple tasks to do, yes, and but you have only one thing that can do the things. So then you have this time slicing. So I'm going to allocate, I don't know, three milliseconds of my time to do task A, and then next three milliseconds I'm going to do task B. Then, but in the compressed view of human time, it looks like they are running parallelly because the task switching is so fast. So the, the concurrency... Yeah, the computer kind of masks it by just being so quick. Exactly. Yeah, so exactly. Uh, yeah. in, in, my, in my understanding, at least, as far as I, I understand, uh, concurrency is essentially when you have just one uh, thing that is going to do the tasks, but parallelism comes into the picture then when you have multiple things that can do the multiple tasks at the same time. So I think because nowadays we have this quad-core machine, so there are there is always some parallelism going on. I mean, when I was speaking with, on, on Skype that is running and, and there is another program that is running in the background, I'm pretty sure the whole network monitoring shit and everything. So my operating system is already taking advantage of having multiple cores and running things parallelly. Uh, but if you switch to concurrency, then there are, as you were pointing out, both concurrency and parallelism mean that there are multiple things happening at the same time, but the way they're executed. If, well, I think, I think the other thing to say is that, is that, you know, like like we've been talking about with the hardware, is that yeah. the operating systems take care of concurrency for you um, yeah. by by either time slicing, like you say, or being aware that that something is going to talk to the network or talk to a disk, so they can essentially swap that process out and give yeah. something else a chance to run. So. Yeah. They they either do it they either do this scheduling via resources you know if you're listening on a on an I/O or a, or a, a network I/O or a disk I/O then they can essentially put your process to sleep and give someone yeah. else the CPU because they know you're not going to do anything yeah but and that's fine but as um, as 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 you got through the 90s and the 2000s to towards the middle of 2000 like 2005 2006 yeah suddenly Moore's law runs out. Um, on on a single CPU, mm -hmm. so so whilst you know up until that point your computer program has just got faster and faster and faster, yeah. uh, you know your, your computer could do more things because like you say it was just masking the fact that um, it was really swapping things out. Yeah. Um, so once you get to the point where actually you need uh, you need to exploit parallelism in software, yeah. then it's a different ball game. Because mm -hmm. suddenly, the CPU, uh, sorry, the operating system itself and the CPU itself needs mm -hmm. to they need to cooperate. Yeah. But so for the... if you think about it, like Windows, I was doing some research on this at work actually for like mm -hmm. big data problems, and yeah. um, if I looked at the kind of the stuff that you need to do, and 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 basically, you up until like Windows, I think it was Windows. No, I'm, I'm get me wrong. I might get wrong here, but I think it was Windows two thousand was the first operating system from Microsoft that actually used um, multi-core machines. It was capable of you. I think you could, it could be faked in earlier versions, but 
um, Windows 98, but I think Windows 2000 was the first one. Forget NT, but on the desktop, Windows 2000 yeah, yeah. was the first one. Okay. Um, and in fact, well, in fact, Windows NT was written from the ground up, wasn't it? To yeah, support yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's my point is that it kind of, you know, the operating system had to be rewritten to take care of multiple cores. And what was interesting at that point was that if you were running, let's say you had some uh, a spreadsheet, then if you had some, uh, if, 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 uh, if you were running like Excel 2000, then Excel itself could not, was not capable of running multiple cores. Yeah, because they didn't have the .NET framework. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. aware. So, so then they made the not the not the .NET framework like multi-core aware, just like Mac did with the GCD stuff. Um, and then Excel was rewritten to take care of the multi-core parallelism. So my point is that multi-core has, you know, has brought parallelism into the programming world, and that's the big discussion, isn't it now? Mm. With all these, you know, functional programming and all this kind of stuff, yeah. and this yeah. uh, this whole notion of immutable immutability, data and exactly all these yeah. uh, persistent data structures and the tree-based structures, which we'll come to in a bit more detail. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's you know that that notion of the hardware essentially requiring us to to take advantage of its parallel nature is the thing which is changing in the last five years, last ten years, let's say, but certainly the last five years. Um, and you know you can no longer rely upon faster hardware bringing yeah. you any perceived benefits. Mm. But I think in in closure, I think the concurrent uh, concurrency story is much more mature than parallelism story, right? I mean, because concurrency is one of the uh, one of the um, unique selling points of closure that people, or at least Richie even announced closure. So okay, this is um, the whole STM based. Uh, concurrency and then having immutability everywhere that helps you with shared state concurrency. So you have all these um, fundamental constructs like you have the VARs, REFs, agents and atoms and then they are, they are operating on immutable data structures. So uh, if I remember correctly, uh, you can achieve concurrency based on either shared state, I think. So you can share the memory and uh, there are multiple threads acts in the shared memory. So that, that's how you, you create one uh, kind of concurrent programs. And the other way is basically something like an actor model where you have this uh, messages passing through different threads and uh, the data is passing from one thread to the other or one actor to the other. So that is um, actor-based concurrency or message-passing-based concurrency, I think. So there are two different ways of looking at it. But in closure, the shared state thing was like the bottom or, or the front, one of the fun foundational constructs with um, uh, atoms and agents. I think that is one of the things that people, or at least we, we say STM is going to help you with writing uh, concurrent programs without worrying about locks or writing synchronization uh, by hand. So I think concurrency is much more mature in closure. But I think that's, that's like you say, that's like uh, old school uh, Java um, yeah. concurrency, isn't it? Where you have multiple threads yeah. all running, but trying to access a common state uh, resource yeah common resource uh, yeah and that's definitely definitely very old school and you could do that in java but obviously it was uh it was much more complicated the locking strategies were much more complicated in the exactly. java world than they were than they are in closure world um, yeah and that's you know that's the source of many bugs isn't it in in yeah. kind of uh, imperative and or programming is this whole notion of things not being initialized properly off by one errors you know the usual kind of crap that you get with uh, 
with these uh, mutable data structures. Yeah, but I think there is, um, if you see the, the different constructs, I think there is plenty of uh, documentation available, like which uh, particular STM-based uh, thingy that you need to use in, in what case, because most of the things are, for example, if we, uh, and, and uh, if you use STM, then you need to use uh, software transactions. So using DoSync or um, I think Alter or DoSync. Yeah, DoSync is basically to cover the transactional uh, operations on a given data set or given data structure. And also we have um, asynchronous stuff using agents. So atoms are essentially, if you want to share uh, data between multiple threads without worrying about okay this is going to modify the uh, you don't you don't want to get the concurrent modification exception so that, that that's where atoms are going to help you with so i'm going to put some data into an atom and then there are other threads uh, synchronously accessing the state and at the same time you can also modify the atom itself without worrying about getting exceptions so uh, so without using any any locks so i think that is the simplicity of of using an atom instead of using using uh, lock-based concurrency or writing synchronized methods in Java. But then I think the other one is, most popular one is atoms and agents. I haven't seen too much refs in the wild though. I'm, I'm not sure, maybe the use case are not really that interesting for the real world cases. I, I need to check, maybe because that is, um, there is also a difference between the um, coordinated versus uncoordinated change of the data. So if you yeah. want to change any data in uh, in a ref, for example, then it has to be part of a transaction. So you need to do that in, in do sync or, or a ref set, I think. Uh, there are a couple of functions available. Yeah, it's complicated, isn't it? Because of this, um, the the ordering of, if, of things and the optimistic things and, yeah, and also the deadlocks as well. Uh, yeah, um, and also retrying. Because yeah. if it fails, it's, it's going to retry. basically, isn't it? So yeah. Yeah, I think the use cases for that kind of stuff is a bit like two-phase commit. You know, it's theoretical, all very nice, but no one ever does it, you know, because it's yeah. just horrible for performance. Yeah, I haven't seen any, any do-sync stuff much, but maybe, well, my, my closure code reading is uh, not that much as somebody else would do. Well, maybe you need to get someone to call us in. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure. Time around and tell us a bit yes. about it. You know. People who, you, who are using DoSync, please call us up and then let us know uh, your experience. That'll be cool. But yeah, it would be nice to popular. understand the real world use cases, like you say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I didn't, I didn't get any um, mileage from uh, from DoSync stuff yet, but uh, STM stuff. But primarily, I think I, I wrote Atoms. I mean, I use Atoms everywhere, especially in closure script world. They're really useful. Well, the agents are not available on, on Closure Script. Of course, yeah, yeah. So, anyway, so that's that's the basic... Well, I think the thing about atoms and stuff like that, though, is because it's all basically, you know, assuming that you've got multiple threads accessing some common state. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> so you get concurrency that way. But that's, that's I think, very different to the kind of... the, the concurrency models of things like JavaScript... Um, which I think is really the basis of concurrence we really want to talk about today, isn't it? Hmm. Which is They're things the like you know, core. It, well, also you know, based upon this notion of uh, of Node.js and stuff like that. So you know, there was a lot of this of this of these concepts that hmm. that actually to write an efficient HTTP server, um, it's it's not a good idea. To hmm. um, and and Java people knew this, of course, 
before JavaScript guys did. Um, no, 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 no. Jetty and Comet and all these yeah. kind of things knew about continuations. Yeah. Um, but that's what you need to do. You need to basically, rather than using a thread per request, um, which is the uh, which is very hungry on the memory, um, mm -hmm. you need to use one thread or a very small number of threads um, and basically park the the sessions or the states um, for the inactive threads until you get some I/O coming back. Yeah. And that's the basis of um, that's the basis of of uh, Node.js, but obviously the problem with Node.js is this callback crap that you get, this Christmas yeah. tree code where, you know, you you end up saying, all right, I'm going to do something in my callback, and then I'm going to do something in that callback, and I'm going to do something yeah. in that callback, and the other callback. <laughs> oh my God! Once you get beyond about two or three levels deep, it just becomes totally horrible to reason about. Um, and that's why they call it callback hell, isn't it? Because yeah, yeah, because you have no idea of the execution of the program, and you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't compose it. That's the problem. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And also, you you cannot make a mental model of of the program because you keep thinking, okay, this happens, this happens, this happens, and then it it's like a, a huge uh, mess. Well, it becomes a Christmas tree in the code because you start off you start off at the, in the middle with like. 20 characters then it becomes 25 characters and as you indent out and indent out and indent out it becomes like this huge yeah. oh I'm 400 characters to the right all of a sudden <laughs> oh Jesus yeah so so that's a nightmare and of course what these guys do now um, in the JavaScript world is they use these promises still a bit Christmas tree-ish um, but eventually they're going to move I think to this, to this um, async await stuff in, in ES7 but this yeah. is what this is what um the Go language has for a while, and that's what this core async does now, isn't it? Is this concept of a block of code, yeah. which looks like it's just sequential code, yeah. but will, will happen when some data comes into a channel. So it's essentially a callback model, but that callback happens... Um, in, the, in the code transformation or at the lower level, yeah. because the code, when you read it, it, it still looks like imperative or... Yeah, it just step looks by like step. sequential code, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's very yeah. easy to, to reason about. Um, yeah. But, yeah, under, underneath it all, I think they're basically these things like Go loops and, um, and uh, Go blocks, they're just basically macros, aren't they? They're yeah, like, yeah, they are. I think that that is one of the uh, things that su surprised or maybe uh, uh, thing that, that people use as the nicety of closure or, or the Lisp world is that you can just write a macro that can convert the code from that is looking like um, imperative code and then that is converted into some sort of a state machine because during the compilation phase and compared to Go because in Go they have this uh, language level support for these channels and, and uh, Go routines but in closure is just a library so and I then don't know Go, though actually Go. I mean it's a funny thing isn't it in some ways, I mean, I think it's a kind of like engineering wonder that you can make this macro. Yeah. Um, but it's got a problem as well, though. I mean, one of the reasons why we, you know, like, like people often say, don't they, about closure? You know, it's like data first, then functions, yeah, and then, then macros. macros. Yeah. Uh, and yet, this is kind of like quite an important thing, the macro yeah. of 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 the core async. But actually, you can't compose it. Um, yeah, that's true. And I find that, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure what, 
I, uh, to be honest, I don't know what difference it would make if it was if it was in the language, in terms of yeah. composability. I don't know. Yeah, but in in the language would mean the closure core need to change. So I think that uh, is the. I mean, you say slight. that, but actually, it was Timothy Baldridge <laughs> and Rich Hickey, and they are the closure core team. You know, so if anyone wanted to change it, they had the power to change it. Of course, but you know. then it would be a special form or something. It will still be implemented as a macro, I, I would guess. But um, it, it won't be a library, but it's part of the closure core. And it, it will get the special treatment like um, the if and uh, whatever the special forms that we have. But yeah, maybe that's, I don't know. Maybe we, uh, we should get uh, Rich Hickey on the podcast and then maybe we can ask him, what do you think? And, it would be it would be interesting. I've, I've never actually seen a thorough. I mean, I know that people talk about the macros thing, but I've never actually seen a a proper or never heard. Maybe there is such a thing, and I've just missed it. And yeah. follow up, welcome, you know. But I've never seen a, um, a a thing saying, "Ah, yeah, it was a macro because this, that, and the other." You know, apart from the convenience factor of not changing the language, what 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 yeah. are the real actual benefits? I don't know. When, not for the Go macro, but I, I remember reading somewhere that um, one of the um, libraries for uh, probably Redis, I think, uh, there is a macro uh, that generates the code at the compile time for all the functions that are in Redis API that is specified in the JSON spec. So I think there are some use cases for macros. Probably Go macro is one of them. Uh, but of course, I'll, I, I Either we're going to get Rich Hickey here and Timothy Waldridge onto the podcast or we're going to, I don't know, spend <laughs> spend more time understanding this and then we can come up with, okay, this is why this is a Go macro or Go is a macro. I, mean, so, I, 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 still, I think it's fabulous. It's being done. Don't get me wrong. You know? yeah, I'm yeah, just, yeah. I'm just yeah. saying that uh, and it, it, is, it is awesome that, that, that such a feat can be achieved. I just don't know enough about... Um, what the benefits would be the other way around, you know, if it, if it was, mm -hmm. if it was composable, for example, because it's a macro, it's not easily composable. You know, maybe, it's, yeah. you know, that, that's a, that's a downside. That's all I'm saying. Mm. Um, that's true. Whereas if, if you have them as functions, um, and some kind of support in a language, then maybe, um, it would be, it would be more, you know, more powerful even. That's true. But, but when you think about, as, as a designer of a programming language, it's all about trade-offs, right? I mean, you need to pick one way or the other, you know? So every every approach has its own advantage and every approach has its own yeah, disadvantage. So we, you need to see what is the trade-off here. So making it a library and then not imposing it into uh, into the core. And and also the one of the things that, that uh, in this case particularly is that um, Channel-based concurrency is not going to be the holy grail for everything, so it doesn't need to get language-level support. Maybe that's could be another speculation from from my side that because there are there are still other other types of concurrencies uh, models like actors and um, yeah, channels, and then of course you don't want to go to the thread level because that's too low level. So maybe there is still scope for other types. That, that's what I remember when, when uh, Core Async was announced and people were asking questions about why not actor-based thing because Richiki said, I think channels are much more interesting way of implementing concurrency, uh, not the actors. Well, his argument the about argument. the acting thing was that, is that the caller has to know the callee. Um, yeah. And that's, that's, the, that's the big difference between Hmm. the core sync model where you just you put a threat you put some data on a channel 
and you don't know what happens to it. And, and it can be picked up by many people, many people listening on that channel or many people, many yeah, yeah, processes many listening processes, on that channel. Yeah. And, and I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of that, definitely, you know. And, yeah. and, uh, there is a decoupling between... The decoupling between the caller and the callee makes actually, makes the whole system more composable, I think, and more loosely coupled, um, which is something that we like, isn't it? Um, yeah. So, and, and I, I think actually on the, uh, I can't remember the details, but on one of the closure things, there's a, I wouldn't say denunciation of the active framework, but definitely a kind <laughs> of like, a, you know, we prefer, we don't like that framework because of A, B and C. And, and, and certainly the, the, the linkage between the, the typed uh, messaging of, yeah, the, yeah. of, the, of the, the caller and the callee is definitely a, a big negative, I think. Yeah, that's true. I think if you see Akka, for example, well, they're, they're working on typed actors, so that might be there in the future. But so far, it's, um, well, I, I, I worked on Akka uh, without any typed actor stuff a bit. So so actors can consume anything. So there is no typing involved. So that, that is where one of the um, nice stuff that you have in Scala world is that, or Scala, that you have these types, but then once you switch to actors, then the types are gone and you send a message to any actor and then it might choose to not to respond or not to consume it or well it will consume it but it won't act on it because it the method itself accepts any so you don't know and there is no compile time check to tell you that hey this uh, i can only accept these kind of messages but there right. is there is a um, typed actor thing happening there as well but anyway let's not uh, talk about um, actors much because i think channels are, are the way to go obviously well, actually, the interesting thing is that, like, like you were just saying there, you know, you can now start to do things like put, you know, specs around the data, for example. Yes. And you know, you you can do some interesting things there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've done a little bit of programming with the core async stuff, and it seemed it seemed very nice to me. Um, mm. I wrote a few blog posts about it, and I think um, I think there's some very powerful primitives and some nice ways that you can combine data. Um, yeah. I did some time series stuff on it again, which was which was good. Um, but the the thing which I thought was uh, I was talking to a friend of mine from the Belgium meetup actually, and he mm. was saying that in the Go blocks there was some problems with um, exception handling, you yeah. know, and he found that like in the end it was getting you know, quite annoying to have an exception handler for every single. Um, mm statement almost in the uh, in the go block uh, and he ended up abandoning it and going to manifold from okay. Zachtelman yeah, yeah. Um, which was you know less or more uh, consistent in that respect yeah, yeah. Onerous. Um, but anyway I mean I, I certainly found core async very nice and I think actually to, to be honest because I think core async like it or not is the you know, 800 pound gorilla in yeah. the uh, concurrency world enclosure, so mm. you know, like it or loathe it, it's here to stay. Um, and I actually like it a lot, so um, I'm not I'm not upset about that. But what I was going to say was that the the nice thing about it is that you can have all kinds of um, filtering on stuff as well. So you can run these kind of transducers um, mm. on the channel as well to yeah. to transform the messages and to filter the messages and all these kind of things. And they're really incredibly easy to write. I was mm -hmm. super impressed by that. At first, I thought, "Whoa, you know, 
oh, a transducer. Oh, that's going to be hard. <laughs> it's going to be quite a complicated thing. But it was so trivially easy. You know, sometimes you can get put off by the names of these things. Um, but actually, it's just, a, it's just a simple map or filter function. Um, and it, it, it does, yeah, it, it's so easy to, 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 to make the input of a, a channel converted to another you know yeah. to either strip stuff out or to convert stuff to put on another channel it's so so easy yeah i think i i, I had some uh, understanding of a transducer so i was thinking that there is a, this this seek um, abstraction so any function that can work on a seek is going to work on this one but then transducers are next level of abstraction that says as long as i can ask for the next thing in it you know that is fine. So obviously, uh, because of the seek um, abstraction, you could use all these functions on on vectors and um, lists and uh, yeah, uh, anything that is implementing a seek. But obviously, you cannot use that on on a channel. But channel is also um, something like a collection. So you can ask for the next thing. Is there a next thing available? I'm going to work on it. Yeah, it's so a stream a, of events actually. Exactly. So you can you can treat the list as a as a stream of events or stream of things and you can treat channel as a stream of things only the difference is that there is some sort of a time component in the second situation probably so the transducers are in in my understanding it's the next level of abstraction that says okay i have i'm going to work on anything that is mappable and that means anything that has a next thing available so it could be a channel it could be a collection it doesn't matter so you can just create a function that is going to work on um, anything that can ask for the next one and anything that I can combine. So that that's what my, my vague um, village idiot understanding of transducers. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. It's, yeah. it's unifying. It's, it's, it's quite the, str the whole stream. The whole stream thing is quite unifying, though, um, because, that, you know, you don't, although you're right, you know, you, 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 you can inject time into these things. You don't have yeah. to. Um, yeah. You know, so you can. I mean, it's very easy, for instance, with Core AirSync to have a timeout channel. Um, so you can you can just say okay, um, put put a timeout channel in the mix, and yeah. your listeners can listen to either one channel or they can listen to multiple channels. And if you're listening to multiple channels, one of those channels can be a timeout channel. And if you get if when that timeout channel closes, you will get an event to say that mm. channel is closed, um, and you can then react on that. Uh, which is which is a classic way to 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 rather than going using like a thread sleep for instance, yeah. um, if you did a thread sleep inside of a channel, that would be bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because one of the things <laughs> you shouldn't do when you're in the channel world is do blocking operations, and of course sleep blocks on the thread. Yeah. Um, so you have to do. That's why these timeout channels are nice because, okay, it in the background it's doing some system. Um, sleeping thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, actually, I don't exactly know how it works, but I'm guessing that's what it's doing. It's got a thread pool <laughs> in the background, and it's using yeah. Of course, some... there is one thread uh, attached to it. I, I remember this. That yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and so anyway, my point is that you know while you're in it, while you're in the 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 go block, you mm. should just be doing um, you know non-blocking operations. Mm. You know, you should just be doing do 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 do. You know, straightforward yeah. things. Uh, yeah. that are all on the CPU, just transforming data or manipulating data. You shouldn't yeah. be doing 
sleeping or IO, IO yeah. those kind of things. Those should be yeah. at the edge of your system. Um, but it's really nice to be able to combine these operations um, informally. You know, you just basically mm. put put some events on some channels and then someone else can compose the way that these events are handled later on. So it's, it, I think overall, actually, despite my notion of saying that macros and functions uh, <laughs> are not composable, etc., I think the core async model is actually very, very composable and very decoupled. So yeah. I, 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 I like that because in the end, it's, it's the data on the buffer that you're modeling, yeah. actually. <laughs> I was going to say the uh, the other thing that's worth discussing about with um, with with core async is this buffering concept actually. Yeah. Um, because uh, you know one of the problems with with uh, asynchronous operations is very very aggressive writers or very very uh, lazy readers. Um, so, and you know this whole notion of back pressure is yeah. is essentially a problem. Because, you know, what what do you do? You know, there's always an interesting question. Is you know, I'm I'm writing um, a log file into a channel, and if someone doesn't read from that channel, well, eventually mm. memory is going to get full, isn't it? Yeah. And something's going to go wrong. So so what happens in core async is is by default um, things are unbuffered. So if you write something, then uh, it, you can't write again until someone reads. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's blocking. Kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But but normally, of course, what happens is that you will you will use a buffer. So mm -hmm. when you create a channel, you can say, okay, well, I'll have a I know, a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand uh, messages as a buffer, um, and and only and then, so then what what's interesting is, then you have some different types of buffers. Because you can choose to and dropping what buffer to do. Or, or, yeah. So yeah, so so you you can have there's um, there's like I think four different buffers. There's ones where where basically if they're not being read out, it will mm -hmm. drop your rights. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Um, so in other words, it will be um, first in. So the the consumer will see the first messages that you put in there. Yeah. Um, then you have these other ones called sliding buffers, where yeah. it will drop the messages that are already in the buffer and yeah. put, take your new ones. Yeah. Um, so this is. I think we should. Go we should call them like first in, first die or something. If it is a dropping buffer, so it's gonna drop from the, the first thing that gets in. If it is not processed, it's gonna be dropped. Right. And the next one is gonna. <laughs> so it's it's probably first in, first die. Yeah. So then messages will be really careful getting into the channel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's in, but I think what's interesting about it is that you you know you have uh, sort of control in your environment as to what what policies you're going to apply to different messaging, different channels. So depending on the nature of the uh, the data, Program. you know, you yeah. can you can choose to either drop it at the beginning or drop it at the end or whatever. And of course, the funny thing is that I think uh, overall people don't like this dropping thing. Yeah, that's that's what I initially when I heard that hey there is going to be a dropping buffer that means it's going to have some sort of a buffer capacity and it is going to drop the stuff, and if you if you think about it in some cases it it really makes sense. For example, if I'm tracking mouse movements, obviously I'm not interested in every you know movement of the mouse and I'm only interested in the latest stuff. Yeah. So that is a reasonable 
assumption that I'm interested in, I don't know, 20 uh, mouse movement path events. And I um, only want the latest ones. You drop the exactly, ones, yeah. Exactly. So if I'm not fast enough to process them, and, and it is fair enough that you drop them. And um, when you when you think about other cases as well, um, in, in, in the real world, people think it's actually losing data. But in some cases, you, you're not really that attached to historical data. You're interested in what is the current one. So in that case, is that the dropping buffer would make sense. But that trade-off is going to give you more control on the program's behavior, as in, I can be sure that this program is not going to die because of eating up a lot of memory. I also think that if you're going to, if you're really, if you're really invested in this data, like this logging data or whatever, you know, if you want to make sure you keep every message, then yeah. you have to use something which has got greater robustness than one single process. You know, um, so that's why to me things like Kafka are so useful mm. because you know they're very large scale, distributed, fault tolerant, all these kind of things. Um, so you know you you get that kind of system. So it would, actually, it would be quite interesting if um, if the closure guys are working on an equivalent of Datomic for core async. You know, uh, if you could imagine like scaling up um, yeah. the collections. Which is what they've done. Essentially, they've they've scaled up the collections for Datomic, haven't they? Uh, I think so. I'm not familiar with the Datomic code base. I well, hope. what I mean is that at, at one point they're going to open source these, it. You have, these, uh, <laughs> you have a, a bunch of persistent collections. Oh yeah. Which are now yeah. durable in the database, so you know what's changed. They're all they're all um, immutable persistent collections, but now they've you can scale them up by persisting them on a disk somewhere and having multiple readers and all this kind of good stuff. But yeah, yeah. If you can imagine that doing the same thing for core async, then that's kind of what you're doing with uh, with with Kafka, essentially. Yeah. Of course, I mean, at that scale, you wouldn't write just closure collections to deal with it, right? I mean, obviously, if you, if you need that size of data, you need an external system to handle it. But this is good for most of the use cases where you don't have that so-called quote-unquote big data which uh, the stuff that doesn't fit into your memory. So it, it makes sense that for, for those, any smaller use cases, it's, it's just going to be okay. So uh, well, obviously yeah, but for- I think it's also, even for the cases of the Kafka, whatever, you know, if you, you can read from a Kafka stream into a core async channel. Channel, yeah, yeah. Because um, it's really, to me, what core async is about is about the way you organize your code, yeah. you know? Um, but I only use Kafka as an example of basically making sure that if you're really caring about the durability of your messages, mm. then that's what you would do about it because there's everything everything in core async is ephemeral basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you want this whole thing to be durable, then you have to then add Kafka some or... message broker basically. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, so before moving to parallelism, I, I just remembered my train my train of thought has parked or, or arrived at the station. <laughs> So now I recollect what I was talking about. I was about to talk about the futures because that is also one of the things that uh, you can use to achieve uh, concurrency enclosure because that, that would tie in nicely because uh, for for the case of parallelism, we have uh, some way around, uh, initially there was this parallel map and well, that is essentially map, yeah. implemented as yeah the P map, which was implemented uh, as, as a future uh, essentially, so for every uh, function, so you have a collection of things and you do PMAP instead of a map. 
that uses future uh, by allocating a thread pool of i think number of cores plus uh, plus 2 and then you have a thread pool and then that is that is what we use to actually execute the parallel mapping stuff but other than that mm, there is a that was a kind of pullman's uh, fork join wasn't it exactly yeah yeah but i think reduces are are the are the example of fork join parallelism right right because yes are- yes yes so let maybe let's move on to uh to reducers like you said because that's a uh, that's where we start moving away from this concurrency model concurrency this to, uh, to, to parallelism yeah, this, this <laughs> yeah okay yeah. exactly so basically reducers when when they were announced uh, they they are going to work on anything as long as they are foldable i think uh, like the transducers are on mappable these are on foldable anything that can be folded and you have this list of um, or a collection of uh, items and then um, it will it will uh, use the fork join framework to divide the given collection into smaller pieces and then apply reduce function or the reducing function onto each of these uh, partitions so that is based on uh, fork join uh, framework in uh, java 1. Uh, 7 or 1.8 not 7 yeah yeah under 7 so so reduces are the ones that that brought in parallelism but i i haven't seen i think there were some benchmarks in in uh, probably richiki's announcement uh, post about how fast the reducers were compared to uh, normal way of uh, using concurrency so you get to use all the cores properly so that's a key thing yeah is that yeah. is that you definitely get you know obviously it's like a lot of these things with fork joins isn't it is if you've got a fairly small data set then the overhead of um the the management dominates things whereas if you've got a very yeah. large data set then exactly Yeah. you can get into this whole work stealing business as well and can be very highly optimal yeah 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 I mean it's like having multiple people to do the stuff but if you if you uh, the division of the work itself is taking too much time then there is no point in applying parallelism to that one and so if if it takes more time for me to um, divide a given numbers to be uh, if i want to if i want to sum seven uh, numbers or or eight for the sake of argument then i have four people and then i need to give them two numbers for each and then they just need to do an addition then the addition com- the complexity of addition is so small that i'm spending more time dividing the task rather than actually executing the task so i think it's it's like there needs to be a lot of in my opinion there needs to be a lot of experimentation to see where parallelism is going to help to to actually make faster programs but In, in a way that's what functional programming is pushing for right i mean because there are no cores more cores available but not each core is not going to be as fast as in in, in the past so which it's not... it's quite funny you say that because uh <laughs> i i think i told you earlier on that i watched this um guy steel yeah. um presentation that rich hickey mentioned and uh in his uh, in his documentation mm-hmm. uh and i think he was asked a question and i don't know who asked him the question actually but there's a lot of luminaries in the audience some mm-hmm. asked him a question about um uh might have been joe armstrong even i think but anyway, whoever it was doesn't matter they asked him a question about what do you think about this exact point about you know modeling for uh for performance in algorithms 
And, yeah. you know, he, he punted on that because he said, yeah, that's actually the, the most difficult, that's the most difficult bit. Yeah. The most difficult bit is, you know, actually, you know, kind of breaking up the work um, is fairly mechanical, but yeah. determining whether or not it's actually going to be valuable to break up the work is, is yeah. very complicated. And of course, there's an overhead involved in that as well. And yeah. I guess if you think about it, um, it's the kind of thing which probably, uh, and I've just thought about this, but you know, it's, if you think about where we see those kind of things in the real world, is we mm. see them in relational databases, in query optimizers, for example, yeah. or in optimization problems in general, don't we? You know, we see them in these kind of linear algebra style uh, modeling things where you know you try to to work out you know backtracking solvers these kind of things yeah um, you know I'm doing a bit of work at the moment on this uh, on on configuring product configurations um, mm. and and it's it's definitely very very uh, slippery to work out when exact what is the actual number you know it gets yeah. back into mathematics of NP hard yeah. and NP yeah, yeah, NP complete, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe we should drop that, drop that bit yeah, of the conversation because we're gonna, we're going to get completely lost in all of the background stuff. It's interesting stuff, but but I think it's uh, you know, like you say, modeling exactly what are the, what is the exact profile of things that are going to benefit from this approach is is actually unknown. That's true, but you triggered something like the performance part. So I was thinking because I've been working, uh, well, I'm I'm working a lot with Spark and uh, HDFS these days, uh, Hadoop stuff, so. It's like sometimes just doing a grep or WC is way faster than actually running a Hadoop program to do the word count, you know, because there is a, well, of course, it's not even parallelism. It's even next level up. It's a distributed uh, work. So that means you not only have multiple cores, but you also have multiple machines Locality and then coordinating them and, and all sorts of crap. But there, there was something in, in Closure World, um, I think it was David Leek uh, or some somebody who announced this Evout library that is a distributed state uh, that uses Zookeeper um, as as a it's essentially like a distributed atom, but um, I didn't see much action happening in afterwards. I think, but um, that that was an in, I think we have we are talking about concurrency, single machine, single processor, and then we move to parallelism. Of course, single machine, but multiple processors, and then you have the multiple machines, multiple processors. There is a distributed world, and there we don't have any interesting stuff happening in Closure, as far as I know. No, I think the only on. thing I mean, was about. Onyx has that. That's that's what Onyx. Yes, is exactly. All about. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, on, yeah, Onyx yeah. is a, a, a hardcore effort at that one. Yeah. Um, so I think you know actually uh, they're they're definitely taking that approach from the ground up. Yeah. You know, um, but it's. I think we want to talk about just parallelism and the sort of the the programming aspects first. I think we should, we've talked before, haven't we, about we, we should approach the Onyx guys. Uh, and I think they're, uh, they're, 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 they're interested in potentially joining us on one of the episodes. Um, yeah, so maybe we should leave that to uh, <laughs> when, yeah. once either Michael or Lucas are going to be on, on the podcast. Yeah, it'd be yeah, cool yeah, to understand yeah. uh, the, but, the but challenges that, involved there. The, the thing, just coming back to this kind of like the reducers thing, the, the, the insight I think that um, Guy Steele made was that you know, functional programming has given us these tree data structures, these yeah. tri data structures, tree data yeah, structures. Tree, yeah. We call them yeah. trees now. Yeah, okay, well, yeah, yeah, I think we call it, we pronounce them tree, but it is a TRIE. TRIE, right? yeah. So, yeah. and in fact, he even mentioned closure in his uh, Fortress uh, presentation. 
you know, to say that Rich Hickey has got this thing which has these um, 64-bit um, uh, data structures. Um, yeah. And it's all, you know, it's awesome stuff. I thought I think it's 32-bit mm. actually, isn't it? But Th Yeah, 32. Yeah. Uh, well, 32-level branching factor. Yeah, 32-level. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He said 64, but it doesn't matter anyway. Okay. It's, it's, it, it all boils down to <laughs> small numbers. It's very big, um, yeah. But this guy still know anyway. But what he was saying was that, you know, is that these tree data structures are the the foundation of this uh, this of the of the future of how to do re reducing and folds and fold R fold L all these kind of things how to do reduce in the future because the thing that you you cannot do you should not do um, in the future is you shouldn't have these do loops you shouldn't have these iterations you shouldn't be forced to iterate over a, a linked list data structure. So basically, you know, trees give you the opportunity to have a very balanced, um, a very balanced uh, parallel implementation. Yeah. Um, and I think Rich Hickey thought, ah, yes, okay. Well, he must have already thought that, but yeah. Thought, ah, yeah, okay. So Guy Steele's definitely given this a good blessing. So let's now <laughs> make these reducers happen. Uh, yeah. So what, what he what he does there is he basically has some kind of function that does the the work and then some kind of you know the the, the folding and then some kind of combining function mm. um, so you have these uh, and the, the real key thing about it and the key thing he mentions in it, and I haven't seen this presentation for a while actually but I remember watching this presentation a couple of times um, is that ordering is the death of all parallelism you know yeah. and that, that current parallelisms like map and fold even enclosure itself now and reduce all start with like zero or they or they assume that you're going to have some function or this function that you're doing this mapping function that you're doing uh this reducing function that you're doing sorry um mm. is is aware that you're going to keep some kind of uh aggregate going yep. through it so some accumulator and it's the accumulation that's the problem so if you if you can strip out the accumulation into something which the combining function can understand which is in other words it's associative then you kind of blow away all of the uh the the restrictions that you've got in the data structure itself uh, yeah. you know you, you don't you don't you don't have to think about it as if it's a vector or as if it's uh, you, you can think of everything as unordered and everything is completely decomposable yeah but that is well maybe we should touch upon this stuff more on transducers episode. I was thinking we should we should dig deeper into into this one, and then talk about how transducers work and and these abstractions and probably something for the newer episode. I think. I think we have almost. A, oh, it's almost one hour. Wow. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean we 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 never looked at the clock. I think these days. So yeah. I remember like looking at from the first episode. It's always like oh, 50 minutes and then one and a half hour and then. I think we need to keep it in in, in one hour though. But before right, okay. we uh, uh, before we move on, I think a quick. Uh, so we talked about uh, a lot about concurrency, and uh, also I think we should post the guy steals uh, um, presentation link somewhere. So we we post the show notes on on Def and Audio. Um, but as usual, uh, we'd love to hear your your feedback. Uh, whoever is listening, our fans, the, the plural <laughs> number of fans that who are, who are listening to this podcast and. Uh, Thanks a lot for listening. And the MP3 will be on SoundCloud. 
and it is also on the iTunes. And um, at next week, I think we will probably try to get a special guest, and but we want to keep it as a secret, so we'll, <laughs> we'll announce it as soon as we get some sort of a confirmation, I, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And of course, uh, thanks to um, our uh, very talented Pizzeri, I think, am I pronouncing right. yes, correctly? Pizzeri, yeah. Pizzeri, uh, for uh, giving us um, permission to use the track. Uh, and, and what is that called? Melon hamburger? Yeah, uh, it's a vegetarian yeah, hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Oh, okay, so obviously the, the music is also vegetarian. So this is the number one vegetarian closure podcast on this side of the pond with uh, with an Indian and a UK Brexit guy. Um, <laughs> I am not for so. Brexit. <laughs> but anyway, bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Okay, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll uh, push uh, the new episode uh, in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Bye.